0: Welcome to Encountering Beauty, a series of podcasts brought to you by Masterpiece London. I'm Thomas Marks, editor of Apollo Magazine, and in these podcasts we'll be looking at the enduring relevance and resonance of what have long been some of the most revered and versatile materials that artists have had at their disposal. In each conversation I'll be joined by two art dealers who exhibit at the leading art fair that is Masterpiece London. Experts in different artistic fields, but nevertheless share particular materials between them. We'll explore everything from bronze to ceramic and from pigments to precious stones, discussing how artists have handled, worked and transformed these materials, and why they're prized by collectors today. Today we'll be talking about wood, a material that is in a sense very ordinary, but which has been made extraordinary by artists from many different cultures and for thousands of years. It's been carved and turned, joined and inlaid, polished and painted, and in many cases, its endurance against the odds has lent it a fragile preciousness that only adds to the sense of wonder that it inspires. I'm delighted to be joined by two specialists in different fields in which wood plays a starring role. Patrick Mezda, whose gallery in Brussels presents objects from outside Europe, from Africa, Oceania, Asia and the Americas. And Sarah van Velden, gallery director of the Dutch Gallery Workshop and Upholstery Studio Moretz, which specializes in mid-century furniture and 20th century design. It's great to have both of you with me. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start by asking both of you just to set the scene. Uh, Patrick, tell me why wood is so fundamental to the fields that you specialize in. Well, I,
1: as you have just said, we are specialized in non-European art and when you look at the material that is available in those countries, in those areas, the first one will come to your head is wood, meaning that fundamentally they got to work with that material. So I would say that the main reason why wood is so important in, in Africa, Oceania, even uh, some part of Asia.
0: So the the ubiquity and the availability of this material for the cultures that you present works from. And we'll definitely dig into some of the different types of wood that, that you might have handled. Sarah, tell me about how fundamental wood is in the field you work in.
2: Well, I think it's probably picking up on that same argument, you know, the fact that it is so ubiquitous. So it is kind of available everywhere. And obviously, in the field of design of collectible sort of furniture, there's still that element of functionality as well and obviously wood is a very durable material it's it's extremely functional and and from the beginning of time to to really this day it has been used to to create beautiful pieces of furniture
0: well i'm going to be really interested to to ask you in fact let me ask you now i suppose you deal a lot in 20th century furniture and i suppose a lot of other industrial materials came on the scene as it were increasingly during the 20th century so how did wood retain its sort of value for makers and collectors?
2: Well I think at the same time as all of those sort of industrial materials came into play there were also sort of industrial innovations in the the way that wood was being used or being produced and, and especially once you go from sort of Furniture that was man sort of manually made to the more kind of industrially produced pieces of furniture. When you're looking at bentwood or plywood sort of innovations, it still is quite interesting, and and wood sort of keeps its place amongst those other industrial materials. And I think the kind of the soul that wood has, the the warmth that it has, makes it very unique compared to to maybe steel or or other materials or, or plastic sort of that that might be used in in furniture design.
0: I suppose we hold on to the idea that it's an organic material and we like handling things that are organic and feeling close to them. Patrick, Sarah mentioned the soul of, of wood almost. And I wondered if there's an object that you can remember perhaps early in your career where you really were amazed for the first time at, at what was possible with wood? Well, probably the most
1: amazing piece I ever had in my life and I was lucky to have to for a few months was an Easter Island paddle made of Tohomiro wood. Easter Island is one of the most unknown place on earth, especially the art history of that area. It's far off everything. It's six hour flight from Chile, which is the closest uh, world. And it's big as Paris, as big as Paris, the island. And when you know a little bit of art history and what the production they've done, there's only thing you can be it's amazed. I had a chance to have one of those paddles. We am not sure of the use of it and the utility, but what we know is that it's phenomenal as just a piece of work, of, of art. And when you have a chance to hone such a piece, like I did, I kept it for my, you know, I don't know how Sarah is doing, but when we're building a show or starting uh, something to, to keep some object like a plasma piece, we're really trying to to save those items because they're very hard to find. So I can be six of July, masterpiece has just closed, and I can find an Easter Island pattern, and then I say, okay, I'm going to wait a year to show it because it's it's very hard to find pieces that are in the range of. kind of piece Masterpiece is asking you to bring and certainly when I have if I have a chance to get another of those paddles I will go with it but I could keep that meaning that you can keep those pieces with you you know safe home that first paddle stayed next to my bed for two months and nobody knew I had virtually a physical relationship with the piece holding it every morning saying hello saying good night and just the feeling the the pleasure to touch it you learn
0: a lot in fact I think you're the first person I've ever spoken to who's kept a piece of wood as a pet
1: well when you see the piece you understand why it's very quiet though
0: and Sarah you talked about this soul of wood and is there a piece for you that you can remember that really first made you realize what was possible with this these materials
2: Yes, definitely. Actually, there there may be two pieces. There's a piece, actually, a, a wooden chair, which is from sort of 1400 BC, which is in the Louvre, which is such a stunning Egyptian chair, which is ivory inlaid. And, you know, you see that piece and it looks so contemporary in a way, but you also, you kind of, what's so beautiful about wood is the way that it ages, the way it gets this kind of stunning patina. So, so that's sort of what, one piece that's always kind of stayed with me. And then, obviously, taking it back to 20th-century furniture, you know, there's certain artists who have used wood in in their production, let's say, or in as a way of of creating beautiful pieces of design, who have really had a sort of craftsmanship or a, or a mastery over the material that no one else had. And, and specifically, I'm thinking of George Nakashima, or perhaps on the other sort of side of the world, then maybe Jose Zanine Caldas where you have these actually two artists who really respect the the material to such an extent that they're that they're presenting even the imperfections in the wood as a as a feature almost in in the design that they're creating
0: that's really interesting this idea that the greatest woodworkers as it were uh, understand the individual pieces of wood in the same way that a michelangelo would understand the individual piece of marble and what's possible with it is that something that you think about quite a lot patrick in your fields how the top craftsmen just have that understanding
1: i like the word imperfection in in sarah's speech you could see that some artists will definitely look after that like in, in japan the Minge people, they will certainly look for a gift of nature, we call them, that are just, you know, pieces of wood that are twisted for in, in such a way, or that are a bamboo tree that is just curving. They will be looking for that because they will represent something magical to them. And it will be an opportunity to go to meditation and relate to Buddhism, of course. And so you could see that wherever you are on earth, this material as something definitely magic, yeah.
0: And Sarah, just a, a little bit more on that in terms of, I'm interested in kind of how different grains or the eyes in wood or how, in a sense, something that's so intrinsic to the material becomes, in a way, both a principle of how it might be worked and also a type of decoration as well.
2: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, I guess, obviously, there there are certain types of wood that, that allow the use of that principle much more than others. And and obviously if you're looking at potentially tropical hardwoods or or for example, rosewood, which is obviously a very sort of rich material in a way, and, and a very sort of sought-after type of wood within all possible types of wood that artists may use in their in their production. It's really looking at those beautiful grains that then, you know, the actual drawing almost in in the wood or or maybe looking at what you have available and making making something with literally that what you have available and not sort of looking to kind of make composite types of pieces, if that makes sense. Sure, and I wanted to sort of move that on
0: to Patrick and, and ask him about, in a sense, we're starting to talk about different types of wood. Mm-hmm. And of course, you present pieces, artworks from all manner of different cultures across the world. How far in, in your work have you had to learn about the different species of wood, even become interested in trees rather than just trees turned into timber, turned into wood?
1: Well, sometimes it's a tricky question when you have visitors coming and then you have a piece coming from the Gilbert Island of Kingsville Island in uh, Micronesia. They would ask, oh, what kind of wood is that? Honestly, the best answer is to say, I don't know, because you don't know unless you go to a center and test it but then you have to take a little piece of it and sometimes you don't want to do that and because a the value is not that important b the piece is very small and you're gonna damage it so it's sad so my first answer what i don't know would be oh it's a it's wood from a three madam so that's that's a that's a good answer, because uh, they're surprised, and then they say, "What are you talking about?" They say, "Well, I don't know, so I prefer to say it's from a three because I'd rather say something, you know, stupid than wrong." On the other hand, when you when you stitch a little bit and, and search, you you will find a great variety of woods. Like you have cedar wood in Australia that's used to make those uh, large rainforest shields that I present one sample last year, 2019, during Masterpiece. It was a phenomenal piece. Got an award for that as well. That's one three. It's very soft and qu- kind of dry. It's not that heavy. Then you have the kayaki wood, which is from Japan, uh, Zelkova. Very dense, very very strong and super heavy. That that's really really a tough wood. You have plenty of type of wood. You have the iron wood, what we call the iron wood, which is uh, the wood mostly used in Polynesia, especially those clubs from the Marquesas called Uhu, and they're made of Equisetifolia Casuarina Equisetifolia, and that's the that iron wood. Again, a very strong wood and dark almost like, how do you call it, ebony? Ebony, ebony. Yeah, ebony, sorry. And it's very strong wood. My job, in my uh, specialities, was interesting is to replace the things from where they are and when they were made. So Marquises, for instance, you have that Casrarina Equisitifolia wood, which is very strong. And they, they're doing hand clubs, war clubs. It's about 120 centimeters tall. And it's, fully decorated and engraved in the 18th century and so you you think how do they do that which material they don't have iron so how on earth are they able to do that on such a hard wood and why are they going to use that wood well they're going to use that wood because they want to protect themselves and they want to be strong and a soft wood won't do the job but still you have the difficulty to work why would they work work that because If you you want to do a weapon, you just take a piece of wood and you cut it savagely, and then you you have a weapon. No, they need to engrave that full body. And it's, it's a hell of a job. I mean, we don't realize the difficulty and the time it could take to do such a thing.
0: Have either of you ever tried doing any woodwork yourself to see how challenging it is to work with wood? I'm useless.
2: Yeah, same here. (laughs)
0: But I suppose, Sarah, you're you're now at Morentz. uh, There's a sense in which having this feeling for the object, for the wooden frame, and presumably you are surrounded by people who have that understanding as well of the practical nature of what it is to work with these pieces.
2: Exactly. So one of the brilliant things about being at Morentz is that we obviously have our own sort of restoration atelier and workshop. So we are fortunate enough to be able to work with a number of craftsmen who really have so much experience in handling wood and restoring the material. Obviously, as Patrick mentioned, it is so difficult to really determine the right nature of certain types of wood. We deal with a lot of Brazilian hardwoods and there's so many different species. It's not always so straightforward to to really determine which one is which, but obviously with with the more common ones, we're fortunate enough to to have a a number of specialists in-house who know exactly what to do with it.
0: I wanted to ask both of you about what we do with rare woods that have been worked sometimes many decades and certainly sometimes many centuries ago. Obviously, there are objects that are made, historical objects made out of woods that are now protected and and you wouldn't be able to fell those trees and make new objects out of them for for trade. Patrick, how how challenging is that for you in your work as a dealer of these objects?
1: I haven't encountered a problem with wood so far. I know some people have been asked the nature of the wood going to the United States because they're very careful with that. I think when, once you have a piece that is dated from the 19th, the 18th century, I mean, you can't save the tree, right? And you can't save the elephant, ivory, which was used in the 14th or 12th century to do something that is religious and precious. Behind that, we have the, the respect of the material. I mean, wood is seen for a lot of Tribes and areas in the world are very precious, and they're not—they're not, they're not going to take it just like that and put it down just for fun. They're going to use it, and they're going to respect it as they do with with other materials that are that are valuable, like whalebone or, or ivory.
0: Actually, Patrick, you mentioned Japanese gifts of God, which is a wonderful concept. But you just make me think about how, I suppose, some of the interest in knowing about different types of wood is that. Presumably for some of the peoples from which you deal in objects that originated with those peoples, there are types of association where the woods are sacred in and of themselves. Is that is that correct?
1: Well, I'm not they're not sacred, I say gift of nature. And one of the things that in Japan, the part of the wood they love is the bur, what they call burl. And that's a loop. So the the vein of the, the wood in, in that case. Would be very dense and it would would have a special effect, and that will be very adorned by by the people because everything is related to to that tea ceremony and the the Buddhism and the the meditation. So, everything surrounding that moment is dedicated to meditation. So, and it could be an Ikebana, the flower arrangement, it could be a bronze vase, it could be a piece of wood. Just a piece of wood will just help them meditate, and, and because You have the tactile thing. I don't know about Sarah, but I think it's the same. But people coming in the gallery at the show or in fairs, they would ask, "May we touch?" And I say, "Please, yes, of course, do touch. It is important to touch to feel, especially the wood. Wood is warm. Wood is very sensitive. Sometimes I, I say, you know, look at that piece of wood. It's melting, and people they are looking at me and say. What are you talking about? I say, well, look at the, it's been so used, so worn during decades, even centuries, that the wood is, is is melting. There's nothing I can say. You know, the
2: form is shaping very differently.
0: Sarah, how important in your field is that sense of the tactility of of wood?
2: Incredibly important, I think. And and to go back to to your question from from before, where you where you asked well, how has wood kind of remained or kept its importance as a, as a material in 20th century design or 21st century design even, if there were so many other materials that became available. It really is due to the fact, in my opinion, that wood is one of those few materials that becomes more and more beautiful with, with age, with tactility. The more you use it, the more you, you treat it, really, the the more stunning it becomes, the more it kind of gets a life of its own. So absolutely. And I think, especially when you're looking at, for example, those Brazilian hardwoods, the tactility of, of the different kind of, you know, types of wood that are being combined, it, it really is wonderful to to feel as well as see that. And to maybe go back to your question about the, the CITES sort of angle of things, it definitely is something that that has become challenging in the way that obviously rosewood which has always been seen as as a really sort of rich material and and has been used in in incredible pieces of furniture throughout the centuries you know the the fact that that shipping types of wood like those has become more and more difficult it it is a shame because it's such a beautiful material and and it's It's a material that up until maybe the 1970s, 1980s was still being used in in incredible pieces.
0: So you have to watch out for things that might have more recent rosewood in in them.
2: And historic rosewood. So it is always a a question of of being able, obviously, to to sort of show the different types of wood that are being used. Obviously, to, to show its provenance as well, to being able to prove how the piece got to where it was which i guess has become important in every single field and in a way it makes perfect sense too but as patrick says there's also a sense of you know this historical element to a piece and and if then because of some sort of potentially more bureaucratic rule a piece may get destroyed that that would be another a thing
0: you you mentioned that that wood and certain types of wood can become more beautiful with age through patina they may acquire. But I wonder whether it's also the case that wood, in a sense, you said was durable, but it's also quite fragile. It's prone to fire. It's prone to insects. It's prone to damp. It's quite a a sensitive material from those respects. And I wonder whether the age of things isn't also something that acquires beauty because of of the endurance, the survival of of things.
2: But I also think that sometimes... You know some of the damages that that may happen to to a piece of wood or to whether whether it may be within patrick's field or or within within the design field it it also almost adds to to its historical context. it sort of gives you you know the piece has had a life before it makes its way to to you the gallery or or finally whichever collection it may end up in.
1: sometimes people are asking me what should we do with that piece? How do we, you know, kind of conserve it and I say, well, listen, we are here for a very short time on the planet. We we are witnesses. We we're just passing through the ages those pieces, like the eighteenth century Marquise Italian Club that I told you. This piece is more than two hundred years old. And I'm I'm fifty two. Probably that piece I hope will survive me for decades or even centuries my my goal is just to bring it to some hands that will protect it and just make sure that this piece will survive so uh, i'm just i'm just a witness just a small moment in the story of that piece
0: i suppose for collectors looking to acquire things made out of wood whatever field of art we're talking about they might need to look out for certain things though they obviously don't want to buy pieces of wood that also come with a whole um, clutch or family of insects inside them how, how can you uh, reassure people who might be asking those type of questions and what should collectors look out for in your fields when they're thinking about the condition of wood let me let me ask sarah first
2: well obviously as you mentioned sort of you'd rather buy sort of a piece without any sort of living family of insects that come with it. Obviously, that type of thing, woodworm, is always something to look out for. That being said, it is something that obviously can be treated, and it's not because a piece, especially in, in the design field, has ever had this type of issue that it can't be restored or that it can't still be a good piece to to be looking at. Obviously, the situation is slightly different if if the the actual construction of the piece is is being endangered because of anything that had happened to it in the past. But I think as long as collectors are mindful of the current condition and obviously have someone who who can advise them on that.
0: And Patrick, is it easy as well to help to train the eye about what might be original and whether things have been restored when it comes to looking at wood and handling wood?
1: It's kind of visible, yes. Some people are getting very tricky and restore. I mean, some nasty because we can see fake pieces uh, on the market, which is always a bad thing. But, I mean, there, there's always a few tricks that they don't know or details that you, you would see. Thankfully,
0: it's still visible. I guess you're not going to tell us any of the tricks, though, are you? Because they're, they're what keep you uh, certain of what's authentic.
1: You know, I think in our fields, the importance is to see as much as you, you can objects whether in, in galleries, in fairs, in museums, in collections, anywhere. This is basically the best school. Sometimes people will look at me and say, oh, how do you know that? It's very simple. I answer, "You know, I'm very impressed by that doctor I saw last week. He, he looked at a scan or radio of me and he said, look there on the left, that, that little thing, that black thing, this is something wrong. I say, how do you see that? That's his job and I have mine and he's got his. So it's just a question of repetition of things and really try to, to get the lesson every time you can.
0: Well, I think on that note, on the schooling of the eyes, that's a very nice place to end. And let me say thank you to Sarah Van Velden and Patrick Mesdag for sharing their expertise today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation.
0: You've been listening to Encountering Beauty, a podcast brought to you by Masterpiece London. Masterpiece Online takes place from the 23rd to the 27th of June and the Fair will return to the Royal Hospital Chelsea in the summer of 2022. Head to www.masterpiecefair.com for more information.